The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today my guest is Bridget Anderson. We'll be talking about how the idea of the migrant is mediated through race and class, the case for no borders and the way in which the mobility of populations within nation states was viewed as a threat in the pre-capitalist era. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast and Soundcloud and you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Other. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It really makes a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. If you would like to, you can also support the show by donating via Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash other. Bridget Anderson is Director of Migration Mobilities Bristol and Professor of Migration Mobilities and Citizenship. She's the author of Us and Them, The Dangerous Politics of Immigration Controls, published by Oxford University Press, and also Doing the Dirty Work, The Global Politics of Domestic Labour, which was published by Z Books in 2000. Today's interview was recorded shortly after the Home Secretary Sajid Javid moved to revoke the citizenship of Shamima Begum, who travelled to Syria at the age of 15 to join ISIS. I began the interview by asking Bridget for her reaction to the Home Secretary's decision. So for a start, the absolute injustice of a you know, 15-year-old girl who leaves the country expecting to, we don't know what, experiencing we don't know what, and then um, finding herself in this impossible situation. Um, but I think... It's also very dangerous because once you start being able to remove citizenship effectively from people, claiming that you're not making them stateless because they have the capacity or the possibility to claim citizenship from another country, you have to think that once you allow that principle, it's actually um, the thin end of the wedge. So, I mean, one only has to think of all the Jewish people in Britain who would technically be able to claim Israeli citizenship. So does that mean that they're at risk of having their uh, British citizenship taken from them? Mm. Um, so I think it's I think it's a very dangerous precedent. And I think it's also evidence of the ways in which citizenship is becoming something that you deserve, that you merit, rather than that is actually a straightforward right and in, I think you can see that this is really permeating into public discourse. So of course, we're going to get caught up in all sorts of very complicated um, court cases and so on, I think, with this particular case. But um, I don't know whether you saw the other day the um, 
uh, racist, homophobe uh, James Goddard, who was so offensive to, among other people, Owen Jones, mm. um, you know, in his um, abuse, saying you have no right to call yourself a British citizen. And I think that's kind of indicative of this idea that being a citizen requires you to have a certain outlook to be a certain kind of person. And if you're not that right kind of person, then somehow you don't merit this um, status. Mm. And I, I suppose in the case of Jones, it's articulated in a rather different way, isn't it? But it's in terms of the notion of sort of elite metropolitan intellectuals. Undoubtedly, there's probably a, a homophobic element there as well. Yeah, yeah. In the case of uh, Shamima Begum, it feels, I mean, you know, it's, it's a very obvious point, but it feels like it's very hard to imagine that this would have happened to her had she been white. Um, would, would you be inclined to to agree with that? Yeah, I mean, there was the um, the case of the young man from Oxford, a white guy who went off to fight with ISIS when he was a teenager and his citizenship hadn't been stripped from him. Not mm. that I would be advocating that, you know, in the interests of justice, citizenship <laughs> should be stripped from white people. But, sure. but I think that, um, you know, the fact is that actually people who can claim by default a citizenship from another country and therefore have their British, British citizenship taken from them are the vast majority of them are going to be people of colour. Mm, yeah. And this and this fits in, I suppose, with the, with the Windrush scandal as well, and uh, the way in w- which it sort of raised the extent to which there's a sort of provisional character to to, this, to citizenship for for many people in Britain. Yeah, that's right, and that and the provisional character is associated with racialization. On the sort of general question of of migration, I think there's this sort of tendency to assume that we know what we mean when we're talking about um, migration and using terms like migrant and borders. But but in your work, you you know you sort of seem to really be trying to problematise those terms, uh, and in fact, you seem to argue that the term migrant is overwhelmingly used to describe people whose mobility is is perceived as as problematic, as compared with other populations, typically white and more wealthy populations, who are very rarely described in those terms. Um, And you also argue that when we think of borders, uh, we shouldn't just be thinking about the physical infrastructure of of border posts and and detention facilities, but sort of other mechanisms and perhaps bureaucratic mechanisms of control that extend well within national boundaries. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you think we should conceive of these terms? Yeah, well, I think migrant is really a deeply problematic term. And that's um, strange coming from someone who has spent uh, many years studying migrants in inverted commas. So um, I think the problem with the term migrant is it is actually such an amorphous kind of term that can mean a wide range of things. So you have, um, for example, uh, how migrant is defined in data, you know, so is a migrant someone who's foreign born, as is said by the um, the Labour Force Survey, for example, hmm. uh, or is a migrant someone who's a foreign national, which is the way that um, national insurance data um, would define it, or are they someone who is planning to come to um, a country like the UK for 12 months or more, which is the UN definition? So even if you're just looking purely at the different ways in which a migrant is defined very rigorously in data, You see, there's a wide range of definitions that citizens, importantly, citizens can also count 
as migrants, and that none of these definitions, um, uh, are, then they're not simply consonant with one another. So the migrant in data is a very kind of volatile figure, and that actually has a lot of implications for the kind of um, uh, headlines and the facts that we're given. So um, if you want to say that there's a lot of migrants in the workforce and they're taking lots of British jobs, then you'll use the definition of migrant as foreign born, thereby mm. including lots of British citizens. If you want to say that there are fewer migrants in the labor force, then you'll use the definition foreign national or recent arrival. So there's these technical questions that then get manipulated and, um, but, and that while technical do sort of structure the data that then go on to form the headlines. But then there's also the kind of emotional idea of who counts as a migrant. So for example, you know, Prince Philip was foreign born but he's not the kind of person that we think of when we thinking when we're using the term migrant. There's lots of U.S. bankers and financiers in London, but mm. one tends not to think of them as being migrants. So actually, in well, kind there's, of... there's the term expat, right, which has, it seems yeah. to be overwhelmingly used regarding wealthier and, and whiter people. Yeah, so British people almost invariably think of themselves as expats rather than as migrants. So, um, so I think that actually, in practice, migrant really signifies um, somebody who is a racialized minority, and by that I include Eastern European, so-called Eastern European migrants, uh, and also people who are poor. So then, this idea that oh, migrants, they you know they do all the the low wage jobs and so yeah, because when they become wealthier, then they're no longer imagined as being migrants. So you have this very different kind of public um, understanding and perception of public and political understanding of what a migrant is as against the um, uh, data, which then is a problem for so-called evidence-based policy, because a lot of the people who, um, uh, who is, are supposed to be migrants uh, and contributing to the numbers can't be controlled by immigration policies. Their numbers, rather, can't be controlled by immigration policies, which is the mm. problem and the tangle that, of course, the um, uh, government got itself into with its stupid net migration figure. Mm. And I suppose because of the the, the movable nature of that category, uh, if you want to, you can always describe there as being a migrant crisis of, of some sort. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, just to and and one can also see how that category becomes racialized or is racialized in the whole language of second generation migrants um, because you know there's a term which is actually really very focused on uh, racialized minorities second generation migrants so mm. it tends not to be used of white people um I, I suppose one thing i found striking reading reading your work was um uh, you, you talk about local authorities and how they formulate their social housing allocation policies, and in and in their case, their conception of of, of who is a migrant is um, you know incredibly broad. It's basically anybody who wants to apply for social housing um, and has you know recently moved to that local authority, uh, and obviously that would encompass basically the the entire category of of anyone who's um, relatively poor living outside that authority. 
Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it's not all local authorities that do that, but there, mm. there are some local authorities who do that. And in a way, this is a kind of um, indication of really the long history of the attempts to control the mobility of the poor. So I would locate the origins of immigration controls not in the um, in not in the early acts of the 20th century, but actually in vagrancy acts from the 12th century onwards, which which really you know has as their concerns um, the maintenance of social cohesion, which one might now call integration policy, um, the cost of labour, trying to keep the cost of labour down, and um, people who were and begging, the prevention of begging, which one could also then connect with the development of uh, the poor law and later the welfare state. Mm. So, uh, and these actually were originally, this was originally the, the governance of this kind of mobility was for a long time the provenance of um, the king's representative and later of towns and uh, local councils. So in a way, I think you can see that that today these local authorities, really it's kind of like a not even a throwback, a maintenance of um, actually quite a long tradition. Um, and I think that what's the, the ironic thing about this is that all of the hostility encompassed in the word migrant, um, which is uh, a term that is so often used to say, you know, we're going to protect our own first. We need to look after our own, own unemployed. We need to look mm. after our own homeless is now being deployed at precisely those kinds of populations that this exclusion is supposed to be benefiting. That is, in this case, people who are seeking social housing. Um, just on the, the the history of these vagrancy laws and, and, and so on, and uh, those laws are, am I right in thinking they're to a large extent, a, a sort of a response to the abolition of serfdom and the, the potential threat that that lays to authorities in the, in the period? Yeah, that's right. So after the plague, when the price of labour was going up and people began to uh, leave their masters and leave their feudal overlords and actually look for paid work and better paid um, work on the land. Um, the concern was that, you know, you needed to stop these people wandering about because they were actually um, a problem for the, they were actually, this, the, their movement was actually challenging the nature of feudalism itself. Their movement meant that they were undermining the feudal relationship between the master and the serf. And in some ways, you know, I, I wouldn't like to draw a direct line, but I think it's interesting to think about the ways in which now we imagine people as being very tied to nations and to having their own place in a particular country hmm. in a parallel way to the ways in which maybe it was imagined that people had their own place in a village with their master in a serve relationship. Hmm. I mean, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, in terms of um, the story that neoliberal capitalism likes to tell itself, or, or tell us rather, is the notion that it's always sort of breaking up fixed categories and it's, you know, abolishing the nation state and that that's what globalisation is always about. And yet it seems there is always this necessity to, to return to some form of exclusionary coercion. 
Yeah, and the requirement of the um, intense coercive violence of states in order to maintain the relationship between uh, low-waged workers and uh, ensure, you know, ensure the pliability of low-wage workers and their necessity to sometimes move and sometimes be fixed in order to be able to um, subsist. So you've sort of already touched on this a little bit, but you um, at the start of your book, you talk about how one of the key terms that you think about is is a community of value. And this is this idea that there are you know certain values that people have to live up to in order to demonstrate that they are good citizens and that they do do belong and so on. In in the context of, of the UK, what what do you think those values consist of exactly? Well, I kind of think that it's a bit like the term migrant really. They are both mm. um vacuous and therefore very easy, easily to um, accommodate everything. So when when they get tried to pin down, British values often turn out to be things like, you know, respect for the rule of law, democracy, tolerance, actually remarkably similar to the kinds of Canadian values or French values or, mm. <laughs> um, so there's not, on the one hand, there's nothing peculiarly British about them. On the other hand, um, I think that, you know, as we've seen with the Shamima Begin case, actually, there then comes this idea of, well, you know, values are, in fact, behaving in a certain kind of way, having a certain sort of attitude to life, you know, so being hardworking, having a good family life, um, generally being a good one might say, a good neoliberal citizen. I suppose just thinking about what British values are, in a way we've kind of really gone for that in a full-throated way with Brexit. And because um, I think that British values, there's, there's a kind of stream of British of ideas of British values which are to do with a kind of certain kind of um, 1950s, you know, um, Daily Mail reading, respectable type of macho-ness, I suppose, yeah. that I think C- that we're citizens seeing. Citizens of somewhere. Yes, exactly. Citizens of somewhere and contributing to the local community with your neighbourhood watch sticker and uh, going to church on Sunday kind yeah. of thing. Well, I mean, regarding that, I mean, I suppose one of the responses to, to Brexit has been, you know, you see this and it comes around again and again, this notion of a sort of, we need to found a kind of progressive English nationalism. Hmm. And it, it, I mean, it seems to me it's very hard to see how one does that without it having a kind of exclusionary character, really. And I, I suspect that's why it's, it's so sort of attractive to sort of more reactionary elements in, in the Labour movement, I suppose, as well. Uh, what do you think of that kind of a- attempt to, you know, use nationalism for progressive ends? Well, I suppose, firstly, that I think you've got a problem with English nationalism, which is empire. How can you forget and rub out empire in order to make English nationalism uh, somehow progressive? But also, I just cannot understand how you can have, a non in the end, a non-racial nationalism. I think it will always be, at best, one that tolerates others, one that uh, others... in in the English case, meaning people who are not racialized as white. So it will always be one which says, oh, no, we also welcome people of color because of, you know, because of empire, it would have to be. Mm. Um, And but that 
tolerance is in its own way an exclusion. It's never going to be a naturalized inclusion of people of color. And I cannot see how you're going to be able to square that circle. Hmm. I mean, I suppose um, part of the attempt to justify it is to point to forms of nationalism which are confronting hegemonic powers of some some sort so you know scottish nationalism is is typically seen as as progressive and um that it's uh, sort of centered around sort of social democratic values and that it's outward looking and you know it's pointed out that it's um that people in scotland are typically more pro-eu and and there's this idea that it's Mm. a a sort of outward facing nationalism does that does that cut, cut any ice with you no, I mean, <laughs> because it's not, go, you know, yeah, until until you're independent and then mm. <laughs> I think that will change. And um, I think, you know, in a way it's, well, in that case, why not talk about a more Republican kind of citizenship? In that case, why think about nationalism rather than citizenship? Not that I think that citizenship is the answer, but I think that the nation calls upon a certain idea of history and a certain idea of one's relation to a territory, a person's relation to a territory, that I think because of the ways that our ideas of nations have developed, I think can't really escape that um, that racialization where, in fact, wherever they are. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose the history of sort of anti-colonial struggles would would bear this out in some in some sense, wouldn't it? That although that may have some sort of functionality in terms of a of, a, of an anti-colonial struggle, the situation you you find yourself in once you've achieved independence is it may may well be that you've sort of um, helped to empower kind of you know re- relatively virulent nationalism, which in itself is exclusionary. Yes, and one might also have helped to impl- empower. Um a class that is also exclusionary. So, I mean, you know, is there, I think that one of the dangers is, well, you know, is it any better to be oppressed, exploited and abused by someone that is of your nation Hmm. than someone who is of a allegedly foreign nation? So, So sometimes I think it's sort of the idea of foreignness and the foreignness being the issue rather than, the um, extraction, the exploitation, the patriarchy being the issue, I think sometimes we can get just sort of, it means that we go off on the wrong tack. Mm, Yeah. Well, I I recently interviewed Kojo Karam, who was um, talking on this very theme and talking about how uh, if, if one looks at anti-colonial struggles, typically the situation was you sort of had a, a local, relatively affluent bourgeoisie opposed to British colonialism, say, but all the sacrifices in the struggle were typically borne by much poorer social strata. And it, it's that bourgeoisie that then gets into power and oversees a pretty miserable uh, economic order and so on. Precisely. But I then, you know, to be rather controversial, that then raises questions about uh, so-called indigenous sovereignty. Mm. Um, and claims of First Nation status and so on. A friend and colleague, Nandita Sharma, is just about to bring out a marvellous book, I think, which is looking precisely at these um, the history of immigration and citizenship laws as they got rolled out towards the so-called end of colonialism, but also the uh, consequences for indigenous people and migrants and the struggles of both and how those have both been divided actually 
by ideals and fantasies of sovereignty. Hmm. So, you, I mean, you would you tend to think notions of sovereignty are, are always reactionary, effectively? I think notions of sovereignty are, yeah, I think they're always reactionary. I think they always introduce relations of power and exclusion that I think in the end are, I think we have to think, I think we, ha- we have no possibility but to think about ourselves globally and cutting us into ourselves now into these different groups with um, very exclusive relations to spaces, I think is not in the end going to help the earth or ourselves. So in terms of kind of, you know, sort of long-term goals, you describe yourself as as an advocate for, for no borders rather than open borders. The distinction between those two things won't be obvious to everybody could you could you explain what you what you mean when you say that you favor no borders over open borders well i suppose i feel that borders are in the end always like gates or uh, methods of exclusion and cutting up the world into the haves and the have-nots um one thing that i wanted to say was that i was reading a really interesting report which was i think it was it was quite old it was from 2012 but it was using World Bank data. How much do you think the 1% of global income earners earned a year in 2012, roughly? Taking a rough guess. So it's, it's going to be surprisingly low, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is. 30,000? Yes, 24,500 pounds. Right. So, and I, you know, 24,500 pounds, the global 1%. Now, £24,500, you are not rich. You're hard up, even a, even in a country where you have free secondary education and free healthcare point of delivery. You know, you're going to find it tough if you've, got, if you've got two kids to bring up. So thinking about that is really fundamental to understanding people's concerns about immigration. You know, I think at some level... There is an appreciation that actually there's a whole lot of people who are much worse off than mm. I am, and I am scarcely getting by. And I think that until we got a kind of an approach that really can speak to that understandable, if unjust, anxiety, I think that it's going to be difficult to get people who are still relatively well off even though in, in terms of where I am in class in class wise and you know other people in I you know they're they're much worse off than me so I'm not you know I'm not mm. sort of but still I think that until we can kind of speak to that anxiety I think it's going to be and 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 actually demonstrate that there can be shared interests between people who are in the global 1% um, but barely getting by and in the global 99% until we can find those shared interests and start looking up at the super wealthy and the people who are and the people who are extracting more and more wealth I think that we're not going to be able to really get very far so I suppose what Mm. I'm trying to say in that is that we really need to be thinking properly thinking internationally and seeing migration as really a kind of symptom of massive global inequality 
that is a problem for the vast majority of people in on this earth, including the majority of people in relatively wealthy liberal democracies. So we have to have that kind of perspective, I think. And that kind of perspective is not as difficult to kind of marry with this idea of the world as chopped into lots of different nation states. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.